I didn't decide to write crime novels. I, I never sat down and said, I'm going to write a crime novel. I sat down and wrote the novel that was in my head. And it didn't cross my mind what genre it was at all until I was nominated for Crime Novel of the Year Award with my first novel. And then I won the bloody thing and I was so embarrassed in front of the other actual crime writers who wrote actual crime novels. And I still didn't really feel that I'd written a crime novel. Liz Nugent is the award-winning author of the best-selling novels Unraveling Oliver, Lying in Wait, Skin Deep and Our Little Cruelties. But that really is only the headline of her story. She's written for TV and radio, spent 10 years working in theatre show production, including a stint with Riverdance on Broadway, and spent a further 10 years working in dramatic TV production at RTE. In fact, the books, the success, the awards and the critical acclaim for her crime fiction came as a result of a simple short story she submitted to the Francis McManus short story competition in 2006 that grew legs and became her first novel. But to say that Liz has overcome some obstacles is an understatement. A horrific fall as a child left her with a brain hemorrhage and a rare muscle disorder but that was only the beginning of those challenges, as you will hear. Liz Nugent just doesn't stay down. If you'd like to hear the full conversation, I really recommend you come along for the next 40 minutes after the free stuff that's here on iTunes and SoundCloud. You won't be disappointed. It's all available on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. We make a certain amount available here. And then to pay the bills and to keep the lights on at Irishman Abroad, we welcome you as members to become premium subscribers to the show for the price of a coffee each month. If you're an Irish person abroad or at home, you will really love the back catalogue, hundreds of episodes from the last eight years of conversations that I've had with the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores. It's all on patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad, jigsaw.ie or my chosen charity partner. And every month I continue to log kilometres for my Jigsaw Irishman Running Abroad Challenge, where I'm attempting to run 20,000 kilometres in the space of a year with the help of Sonia O'Sullivan. Every Tuesday, she's my coach and yours in the Irishman Running Abroad podcast. I thoroughly recommend you give it a try. This week, I went through the mortification of having Sonia analyse my running technique. Technique is, of course, in inverted commas there. Truly one of the most embarrassing things I've ever submitted to, but also one of the most helpful. We had a guest, Emer O'Brien, who's a running technique coach from Kilkenny, come on the show, lend her expertise and uh, give her two cents. Just so as if I didn't feel ganged up upon enough, Emer was there. It's a fun chat and so many of those running podcasts aren't as much about life as they are about running. But I've loved doing it and I've loved having so many listeners come over to Strava and join our running club so much so that Sonia and I have set up an in-person club run on August 8th strava.com forward slash clubs forward slash Irishman running abroad join up come for the run with myself and Sonia on August 8th an in-person club run easy 5k just to mark the anniversary the one year anniversary of the creation of that show but now enough of my yapping Let's listen to the Liz Nugent episode of An Irish Man Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? 
Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Les Nugent, it's brilliant to have you on Irish Man Abroad. I wasn't sure where to start because there's so much in your life, probably three lifetimes work in one. But maybe a good place to start is I read somewhere that you were a compulsive liar as a child and that you made up stories all the time. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely compulsive liar. Like when my parents separated, I think I did terrible things. When my parents separated, I told my little brother that my mom had locked my dad in the shed. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, I used to leave out food for him and everything. And my brother was kind of terrified to go out to the shed because he didn't want to see an emaciated looking dad, like, looking for like, just really ghastly things. And like, like in school, I rang this girl who I liked. She was a friend of mine. Like, she, I don't know why I chose her. I rang her every so often and told her that um, that she had, you know, three hours to die. Three oh, hours. To, three and hours then to I, live. Yeah. And then I rang her an hour later and said, you have two hours to live. And like... <laughs> horrible horrible nasty nasty stuff i don't know like if that was the root of the crime uh writing thing or you know that uh, yeah i was you know i lied about everything mostly to get out of trouble i have to say because i was always in trouble um obviously that those days are behind you and uh you're a very truthful woman now (laughs) and uh, devoted to that and i guess discovering truth like so much of your work and your life, would you say, is hooked into your interest in people and what makes people do the things they do? Yeah, and, and like I I am like, I am so truthful now to, to, to be a pain in the arse, like I'll point it out when somebody says something that's incorrect. I am a fierce observer of humanity, I, 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 you find this of most writers, though, I think, that we watch, you know, we don't say much on the sidelines, but we watch and we observe how human nature goes. And, you know, I'm all I'm always interested in the in the whys. You know, I was actually watching Silence of the Lambs last night. And I was thinking, yeah, great fun, but doesn't really explain why, mm. like, give some hints as to why Buffalo Bill did the things he did, but they never really explore why, and they certainly never explore why Hannibal Lecter became a cannibal. And that was very unsatisfying for me because I want to know the why. Mm, and it, I guess it was very of the time as well. There was bad guys and yeah. <laughs> evil. <laughs> why they were. When this incident takes place in your childhood where 
your family is held at knife point. You slept through the event. But that surely, when you go back, must have sparked some sort of interest in how a person can veer off the standard path. Yeah, I was probably about 10. No, I was probably about 12 years old when it happened, maybe even 13. And um, yeah, he happened to be our next door neighbour, as we later found out, came in with the stocking over his head and held the family at knife point. And, you know, he was caught going out the gate by the guards because my sister had sneakily run out the front door and alerted the neighbours. Luckily, the other (laughs) neighbours on the other side of the house and not the family whose son was in our house with the stocking over his head. But it, it wasn't just that incident. It was the fact that he was also coming over the back wall, stealing our clothes off the washing line. He was also climbing up the drain drain pipe to spy on people in the bath, in our bathroom. You know, he was an ever-present threat. You know, and like at the time, for some reason, I presume it was finances and we had no money. Like we, I never had a, a key, a front door key. So I would go around the back of the house to the shed where I didn't lock up my dad um, to collect the key, which was kept under a dustbin lid. And he was watching. So he knew where the key was to our front door. He must have known, although he never used it. Yeah, so all of that was going on. And I was pretty much terrified for my childhood because I thought that every night I went to bed that I, you know, I could be murdered. And I was also terrified of nuclear war. I was also terrified, like as a, as a 12, 13 year old, you know, in, you know, just after the Pope's visit, but the Pope survived an assassination attempt and you're just kind of going, oh my God, if the Pope can be assassinated, who, as far as we were concerned then, was the goodest man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, how the shades have fallen from our eyes. But, you know, like, as we were concerned then, like, he was the epitome of goodness. And he, somebody tried to shoot him, and John Lennon was shot dead in the street. Ronald Reagan survived a, a, an assassination attempt. So all of these prominent people were being murdered in and around the same year, Anne Lovett gave birth to a child who died and then died in a graveyard. She was the same age as me, give or take a year, in Grenard in County Longford. And that had a huge effect on me as well, because the thought of somebody being pregnant at that age was just inconceivable to me. I don't think I was aware of what sex was, you know. So I just had this constant fear as a teenager, constant fear. Yeah, and legitimately, like I'll be honest with you, we were all a bit afraid of the dark as kids. But I mean, you had a neighbor who was proven to be violent and up to no good at your back door. And also there was the element that, you know, the news was so specific at the time, like the news came on at six o'clock. Here is the news. (laughs) of the world now you're done until tomorrow until there's more news and it's, it must have seemed like 
this world is scary, that that's all there is to it. And there isn't much uh, grey in between the light and the dark. No, I mean, it was a grim time to be a child and particularly a female child. When you saw what was happening to women, you know, trapped in, trapped in marriages with large families, you know, with no access to contraception or divorce or reporting a rape within marriage because at that stage it was legal. You know, it was just grim. Like were, really sometimes. Were you um like aside from the lies, which sound like a bit of fun, really, to be honest with you, and I think probably definitely connected to creativity more than you know, a kind of malevolence or anything that was there. <laughs> Apart from the three hours to live, which which does seem odd. <laughs> that girl picking up the phone, another call for you. <laughs> two hours two hours to go. If, if I could the opportunity. I've fallen out of contact with her, but Christine, I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, she knew, like, by the time we left school, we were best buddies again. So, like, it, you know, it wasn't something that we carried through, you know, like, it was a kind of a once-off and I did get brought to the headmistress's office. You said that <laughs> you said that your friends viewed you as uh, I'm not sure what the exact words you use, but kind of uh, tough and uh, wily and, uh, you, you know, kind of stand up for yourself type. Uh, uh, not not wild, but that kind of, you know, don't mess with me kind of person. But you said you didn't feel that way and it surprised you to hear that from them. Well, was it a pretense that you were doing or was it just the you know, the the difference between how we're perceived and what's going on in our minds? I think I was very much the odd one out. We're talking sort of mid to late 70s. And I came from a broken home. I'm using inverted commas that you can't see now here with my fingers. But um, I, my parents had separated when I was seven years old. And it was unheard of. It was literally unheard of in those days. Mm. I, mean, I don't I like I found out subsequently that other people's parents had separated, but it was kept a secret. And I was certainly told to keep it a secret. And I remember the first time I told somebody I was about 10 years old and I told my best friend. And then I was so scared of the consequences that I ran straight back the next day and told her that I had made it up. Um, wow. because I was so scared of what would happen. And it did seem, I, I tell you what gave me the hard act was the fact that some parents, I think, felt that like coming from a broken home was in some way contagious. So they didn't want me mixing with their children. Wow. So, yeah. So I was kind of excluded from like birthday parties or whatever. So I had to kind of put on some kind of act, you know what I mean? Because word got out and word spread like wildfire. And like it was difficult at home. My dad was was not in a condition, like he had mental health difficulties, God love him. And he wasn't in a position to provide for all six of us at the time. So he kind of left without 
without being able to maintain his family. And my mum had to go to work and start an antique business, which she did in like 1976. And starting a business on your own by a woman, you had to have like a bank guarantee who was your husband. And even though they had separated and my father had nothing, like because he had drunk at all, like he was an alcoholic, he was a drinking alcoholic at the time. I'm glad to say, I'm proud to say that when he died last year, he was sober 41 years. Wow. But um, yeah, he was drinking at the time and just, you know, nobody would give him a loan. She couldn't get a loan. So I think my dad's brother went guarantor for her to get a loan to start her business. I mean, isn't that like, I could be listeners running back that piece of audio because that just seems like another planet. The idea yeah. that you need a man's name on this to get this this loan from the system, that the financial system won't recognize you as a, a worthy human being worth having a business because of your gender. She couldn't mortgage the house without, without his signature. Like there were so many things that, you know, even though he had left and he had totally sort of in his King Lear way, abdicated responsibility for the family. He had just gone, like he hadn't vanished, you know, we still saw him, but he had completely abdicated responsibility for the family just because he wasn't mentally able for it. And um, it was incredibly tough for my mum. When I think of it now, bringing up six children under the age of 14, on her own and trying to run a business with no help. Like we didn't have nannies or housekeepers or whatever. And she also made the decision, which in retrospect now, you know, I, I don't challenge her on it because, you know, I don't want to make her feel bad or whatever. But we should have gone to public schools or as, mm. as a, uh, not public schools in the English sense, but non-fee paying. Schools. But instead, she insisted that she was going to send us to the fee-paying schools that our names had been down for since, since we were born. So she had this huge burden of school fees for all six of us. We all went to, you know, very private fee-paying schools where you were really poor if you only had the one pony. <laughs> like, it was completely insane. Completely insane. That, like the, I, I've read, uh, you know, various bits and pieces you've said about her and, uh, you know, your relationship with her and decisions that she made with regards to you and things that you've said. Uh, I'm not sure I do that with my own kids. Did you ever have like a, a period where you guys weren't good, like that your relationship wasn't great. Like she's, I heard that she said to someone at one of your book launches, we never thought she'd make anything of herself. Oh yeah, she did. She said to my editor, we thought she was a complete loser. <laughs> I mean, that's the most Irish mammy thing I've ever heard in my life. Because the I whole know. Irish mammy's thing is very affectionate. And then there's this other side where Irish mammies are exceptionally tough on their girls. My Irish, my yeah, my Irish mommy. It doesn't fit the Irish mommy vibe at all. 
But there was never any, do you have a warm coat? It was always, no, I fought like cat and dog with her. And I, I'm so embarrassed by it now because she really, she was trying her hardest. She was doing her best. She was doing what she thought was right. If Like, it's very easy for me because I'm not a parent to look back and say, well, I wouldn't have sent my children to fee-paying schools. I would have sent them to the local kind of national non-fee-paying schools because we lived in a good area. There was plenty of, like, free schools around. So it, it's like, I, I don't know. I think I would have sent us to free schools to make sure that there was enough food in the fridge or so that we could turn on the heating. But we lived like the bloody Medfords. <laughs> <laughs> just, just so that you could go to a fancy school. Yeah. We had this big sort of, almost, well, it wasn't gothic, but I like to think of it as gothic. But we had this big, you know, house on the main Stilorgan Road in Donnybrook that looked like a kind of a spooky old house. I based Avalon in lying in wait on that house, like five bedrooms, three or four reception rooms or whatever. But, you know, not a lot of food and mm. all freezing. Mm-hmm. And she mortified like I will never play this for because she would be mortified to think you know that 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 was my experience and she's very embarrassed if I ever bring this up but it's it's the truth it's the way it was it's also quite like I definitely identify with it in terms of uh, the UK here when I came over and the sense that wow these people appear really wealthy and then at all, if you scratch the surface, not all of them, but a certain amount of them really were keeping up appearances. They were that it was more important to appear to be able to send your kids to the fee paying school than to actually kind of have a good quality of life in the home. Now, I don't get the impression that you were sad as a child, but loneliness comes up a lot like and the being yeah. an observer and I think time and time again, when we have writers on the show, that's definitely a common thread that whether they become comedians or playwrights, the, the, be, the sense of being outside of it all. How much of that was down to not being able to afford the nice dress or well, feeling like, well, I'm at this school, but should I really be at this school? I mean, friends would go off to you know, daddy's villa in Fuengarola for their summer holidays when Fuengarola was cool. And, uh, you know, I would go down to my granny's in Skibbereen. And so I couldn't afford financially to keep up with my school friends. Like there was a few of them, you know, who would have been in similar financial circumstances to me. And, you know, we hung out together but we were very much, you know, not that we were singled out. And in fairness, there wasn't a lot of bullying. There was some. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's very true that nobody makes you feel bullied. Mm-hmm. Like it's up to you to be bullied in, in a way. And that, that's not belittling anybody's experiences of being bullied. But we allow ourselves to be bullied because it's how we react to the bullies that makes us the victims. To an extent, yeah. To an extent, yeah. 
But um, yeah, it, it was an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary sort of education in that I also didn't do any work in school. I mean, really? my sister, yeah, my sister was the head girl, and I was the opposite. I took off and you know joined the Hare Krishnas for a couple of days, and kind of left pretty quickly because the food was rotten, and um, you know I was always caught smoking or you know I was you know I I, I was you know I I always owed money and fines to the headmistress for misdemeanor <laughs> or whatever. They made a fortune out of me. <laughs> I, I didn't see this coming. No, like, I did not think this was going to be part of the conversation because to read your work, it's like, oh, well, here's someone. And to look at your career, it's like, here's a diligent, hardworking person. What was it about school that you were like, you know, to hell with this? I've always been a really hard worker, but... Only, only when I'm working for something that I really believe in or something that I'm doing for myself. I really resented. I remember being nine years old in school and thinking, I have another nine years to go before <laughs> I leave here. Like, like I don't even remember the first three years. And yet I have to live my whole life again in this school. I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, like, this is endless. I am never going to escape. And, you know, and it was not, it was definitely not the fault of the school either. You know what I mean? I was just one of those rebellious kids who, I just didn't like being told what to do. I still don't. You know, I'm kind of a strong personality. Um, pain in the arse, as a lot of people might think. Um, my editor is the only person who can tell me what to do now, which is great. I can really relate to this, honestly, in the sense that I do remember, and I've talked about this a couple of times with people, that I didn't understand the hamster wheel aspect of school. (laughs) That it just felt like, what is the point of doing this homework? You're just going to give me more (laughs) when I finish this. And it's going to be more boring than the last thing you asked me to do. I can also remember preparing for my summer exams with the mindset of all I need to do is finish these things and then I'm free. And that it wasn't a matter I'm going to do myself proud that it was about I just got to get through the bars of the gate and then I'm out of here. That journey, though, through exams, like with everything you were dealing with physically was way harder for you than everyone else. Yeah. But, and I think but yet your mother didn't ever go, you need a bit of a break here on that or even just an hour extra because you write slower. When you look back on that, you there must be a certain part of you that's like, I wonder what I would have got if I'd had the dispensation. I, I don't think I would have done any better because I hadn't put the work in because I didn't expect to do well. Because, gotcha. yeah, I, I didn't expect to do well in exams. Although every time I came home from an exam, my mum said, how did you do? I'd say, oh, I think I did fine. And, you know, just hid in London until the results came out. Mm. <laughs> you know, like I emigrated at age 17. And when I think about it now, I don't know any 17-year-old 
who I would let go to London on their own and rent a flat on their own. <laughs> in the but, 80s. Yeah, in the 80s. But there I did it. I did it. I headed off to London on my own, age 17. And was that to hide? Like, was, was that the principal motivation? It was to get away from home. I really was not getting on with my poor mother, who I had, you know, I had really put through hell when I think about it now. I had, you know, been, you know, I was just a really rebellious teenager. Nothing she could say was right. Nothing I could say was right. There was just clashes all the time at home. And I really felt like, I think now, in modern times, I would have been taken to a psychiatrist. But it just wasn't an option and it wasn't a thing then. But I think I was probably having some kind of breakdown because I really felt like the world hated me and I hated the world back. Mm -hmm. Like Quite seriously, I was I was very, very, very unhappy. So I went to London to see if I could find a tribe to fall in with. And in fact, I was just so incredibly homesick. Incredibly really? homesick. Yeah. After all that? After all that. All, all I wanted to do was to come home and see my friends and be with my family again. And yeah, and then when I did land home, it was after another accident and, and I came home in an ambulance and ended up in hospital. So that's really just the beginning of this chat. There is a further 40 minutes of juicy, juicy stuff for you to enjoy, as I said, over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. There's more episodes each week, bonus content, video, all you could ask for. If you are tired of flipping around between different podcasts and trying to find consistently good stuff, well, I believe that Irishman Abroad has a portfolio of really quality podcasts now, weekly. And boy, oh boy, do I have some episodes banked for this August. A couple of guests just confirmed this week who you're going to love and you're going to already want the extra content from them too. It only costs the price of a coffee each month, a couple of clicks, and believe me, makes a huge difference to being able to do this podcast and to make this my life as stand-up comedy still stutters back into existence. I'd love you to pop over and join up patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. John Marr does the research and he knocked it out of the park this week. He does the research with me. He does the added stuff behind the scenes and ever since he came on board for the show he's made my life an awful lot easier. Brian Connolly as always on Sound Tina and Mikey make it all possible. I will talk to you on Tuesday with more Sonia but uh, once again thanks to Liz Nugent. Come over and hear the rest of the chat on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. <laughs>